Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning, I'm John Fortier of AEI, and welcome to an event today on the power of the purse, uh, the role that Congress may play in controlling the purse and its relations with the executive power. Uh, this is an event, part of a series of events that uh, is sponsored by the Henry Salvatore Center and, and the American Enterprise Institute, uh, especially with uh, Zach Corser and Kevin Kosar, who are uh, essentially co-directing this effort here. Uh, and we have a, a great panel, which I will quickly introduce and really jump into it. Zach Corser, who is at Claremont McKenna College uh, and is the co-director of the Policy Lab there, also over the Salvatore Center. Uh, Kevin Kosar here, a resident scholar at AEI, previously at, at uh, the Library of Congress and R Street. Uh, and Phil Wallach, who is also with us uh, at AEI, uh, also previously at, at R Street and in uh, the Brookings Institution, but also the, uh, the author of a paper, which will be important in this session that he'll speak about called, Does the Executive Branch Control the Power of the Purse? Which you'll note is slightly different than the title of our panel, which is, Does Congress Control the Power of the Purse? With that, let me turn first to, to Kevin Kosar uh, for some thoughts about the power of the purse. Kevin. John, thank you very much. And good morning to all of you who tuned in out there. Well, with the Congressional Budget Office predicting a more than $2 trillion deficit this year, now seems like an appropriate time to discuss Congress and the power of the purse. And for sure, there's plenty to discuss. I think there is nearly unanimous agreement that the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Act of 1974 needs revised, probably significantly, not least because Congress, for the most part, is not following it uh, very closely anymore, as witnessed by the uh, you know, omnibus legislation that gets jammed through right before government shutdowns being a kind of normal course of business these days. And then there appears to be other problems on Capitol Hill with the power of the purse. Uh, there seem to be pretty weak incentives to coordinate the raising of revenues and spending, and very little stomach to address the fact that the various entitlements and debt payment now are amounting to around three quarters of total federal spending. Uh, on the whole, I think a lot of us are dismayed by the sort of unreality about budgeting going on on Capitol Hill and in the White House, interestingly enough. Uh, traditionally, presidents have kind of played a role of the heavy, you know, somebody who can help Capitol Hill set priorities and give it cover when it needs to resist the intense demands of pluralistic politics, which in short involves groups coming to Capitol Hill and saying, we want more, please, more tax cuts, more spending, more of what we as a group want. But few presidents in recent memory have shown a whole lot of seriousness on this count. Now this event's focused on the power of the purse and it's worth pausing here for a second to ask, what do we mean by the power of the purse? Uh, well, most fundamentally, the phrase is a riff on two provisions found within the Constitution that assign to Congress the authority to raise revenues and to direct their expenditure. The provisions are the spending clause and the appropriation clause found in Article I, Section 8. <clears throat> and they state, respectively, uh, Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises 
pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. And the other clause notes that uh, no money may, shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. And this is all done by Congress. So there's a complementarity between these two clauses. You have a spending power, that's the power of Congress, and then you have a revenue raising power. And you would think that these should be in coordination and should be you know, used to uh, achieve goals under the kind of specific purposes of Congress uh, and under the general welfare purposes. But, you know, I think reality often deviates from grand plans. And um, what you'll hear today is that in many ways, Congress has kind of veered from a strict adherence to following these provisions. And uh, I'll mention here that uh, I recently put together a paper on uh, an instance where Congress delegated away to the executive branch uh, authority to collect monies and also the authority to expend them. And this was done under a general policy of empowering agencies to uh, independently collect money in the form of fines for breaking rules or laws, fees, charging people user fees, like you know, if you wanna get into a national park, you may have to park, pay for parking, uh, and penalties. Again, an assessment that gets levied for somebody who's broken a law or regulation. Uh, Congress has empowered many, many agencies to collect money in that form. That way they don't have to get parts of their budget from taxation uh, and appropriation via Congress, but instead they can generate their own revenue. And interestingly enough, I also found that there are many agencies that have the power to just take that money and turn around and spend it with very little congressional direction and without Congress having to go through the whole process of reappropriating funds you know, the whole laborious authorizations, appropriations, send the bills to the president process. Um, this is clearly a deviation from, you know, what the founders imagined and what's in the constitution. And it raises a question of, you know, should we be concerned about this? Should we be alarmed about this? Uh, on Capitol Hill, some people have taken up this issue. Most kind of um, look upon it as a regular way of doing business. And, uh, you know, in terms of the scale of how much of this is happening each year, Congress allowing agencies to raise uh, money in the form of fees and funds and penalties, it comes to somewhere around $350 billion per year that are being brought in. Now, I should say that as I've dug into this topic, um, I've become a little bit skeptical of some of the most alarmist claims about this delegation of authority. Um, you know, there have been some members of Congress who stood up and said, you know, we have no insight into what agencies are doing. They're bringing in money. They're ripping off American taxpayers through fees, fines, and penalties. And then they're just spending it on whatever they want. That's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, when I looked into some agencies and kind of the oversight that was being given by Congress to uh, how they collect the money, how much they collect and where the money gets spent. Gets spent. What I found is um, that not many people in Congress understand what's going on, but a few do. And those would be the appropriators who have specific jurisdiction 
over those agencies. They have pretty fine-grained knowledge of what's going on with these funds. Uh, and they have put in place all sorts of directives and instructions to agencies about how they're supposed to spend this money. And as I kind of came upon this discovery, it, it raised all sorts of questions in my head about, again, this larger concept of what do we mean by the power of the purse? Uh, I think it's easy to think of Congress as a collective whole and that they should all have some sort of understanding of where all the dollars are going, uh, which are north of five or six trillion this year. Um, but the reality is that's extremely challenging. And so what's broken out is a sort of division of labor where a few people uh, on appropriations committees and perhaps elsewhere have very high level specified knowledge of where agencies uh, are spending, how they're raising money and all that sort of stuff, which on the one hand sounds like delegation with accountability, but on the other hand, if only a few people know what's going on, how much real accountability is there and how much collective power of the purse can Congress as an institution exert? And so with that kind of broad sweep, I'll end my remarks. Zach Purser. Thanks, John. Um, I want to talk specifically about earmarking because earmarking is a really important, I think, institutional reform that reflects a lot of what Kevin and I think what Phil are going to uh, Phil is going to speak about regarding Congress's power of the purse. I think one of the biggest challenges to sort of rethinking earmarks was the idea that, you know, earmarks are not as much about spending or deficits or waste, fraud and abuse, the sort of, you know, normal cant that we have heard about earmarking in the past. They're really about Congress's institutional powers. And they're really about empowering legislators to do their jobs. And I think one of the things that Kevin and I set out to do, we started about a year ago, uh, thinking about ways in which we can increase uh, legislative capacity in Congress and thinking about reforms that would allow the institution to change. And earmarking sort of stood out to us right away for a number of different reasons. Um, relating to legislative capacity. One is, is this idea of realigning spending powers. I think there was, you know, in, in terms of, you know, why it, it is that the earmark moratorium, which started in 2011, it came together basically, you know, in a confluence of events where America was beginning to recover from the mortgage crisis. There had been a very large spending package that came through in 2009 that increased the deficit. And then there became a sort of, uh, steady drumbeat against earmarks thanks to a handful of, of very um, public scandals uh, relating to uh, earmarking, whether, you know, looking at Randy Duke Cunningham, for example, and his selling of earmarks while he was in Congress, uh, to thinking about the, the bridge to nowhere, which really helped to set back the idea in the American imagination about what earmarks were. But you know, the, the moratorium set out to essentially try to control spending. It was a spending issue. When President Obama in his State of the Union came out and said, no more earmarks, he was really talking about spending issues. And it's not really a spending issue. Uh, really what it is, again, is this constitutional power because in eliminating earmarks, what happened was a realignment of spending authority to the executive. 
essentially these decisions went out of Congress and went into executive agencies. There was an inversion where Congress people were going to the executive and looking for uh, funding for specific projects that they would have normally been able to do themselves within their institutions. Instead, they're going to the executive and the executive was helping to control those funds. Second is the idea that, you know, you know, are earmarks really a spending issue? And looking at our research, they're not. Uh, earmarks traditionally make up about 1% of discretionary spending. And if you compare discretionary spending to entitlements, um, mandatory spending in Congress, we're talking about a fraction of a fraction of federal spending. And if you analyze spending after the earmark moratorium, we don't see any realization of say, big deficit cuts or a substantial cut in federal spending. What we did see though, again, was this rebalancing of power towards the executive and an undermining of, of, a, of a practice that used to be an essential part of the way Congress governed itself. Uh, it, you know, we, we, we thought about this as a way to empower legislators to identify spending needs at, in their local districts uh, to represent those needs and bring those needs back uh, through the appropriations process. Uh, another important idea that we had going into this was trying to reduce the ideological basis of, of legislation and legislating uh, in Congress. You know, when you take away any notion of sort of transactional needs, you know, the sort of basic rudimentary uh, fact of governance that people have have needs, uh, you know, economic needs, and that a lot of what Congress can do is identify, prioritize, and fund those needs. If you take that out of the equation, what's left is ideology. And what you find is that there's really little room often to compromise on belief. People come to Congress, uh, they, they think about, you know, the the partisans that sent them there, they, they reflect those ideological views uh, and really um, without any kind of transactional incentive, ideology becomes the sort of center of, of activity on Capitol Hill. And so, uh, and last thing I would say in terms of our thoughts about earmarking was in, in rebalancing was to try to rebalance in the sense of giving the legislative majorities opportunities to get their, their agenda through. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the research and sort of what we found uh, about earmarking. The first thing that we did is just sort of looked at the numbers. And as I said earlier, uh, earmarks were not a significant contributor to, to federal spending. Uh, when you think about their value within the institution, uh, again, on average, 1% of federal spe of discretionary spending. So they were not deficit busters. They, they weren't significant contributors to deficit spending. Um, the other thing that we found is we, we decided to, to interview former members. Um, something I wanna mention briefly at the end of my comments is, you know, of course, this has been the biggest month for earmarking in 10 years. Uh, we, we've now got a plan um, in the House of Representatives and, and, and current talk in the, the Senate right now about bringing these back. Uh, uh, there's, they're, they're going to take requests really towards the end of this month. There's been maybe a slight delay in that, but. It looks like earmarking, a modified version of earmarking will be coming back, um, but it's been 10 years. Uh, you know, Congress, uh, staff, congressional staff turns over very quickly, uh, members turn over as well. So, you know, there's not maybe as much institutional knowledge about how these, uh, how this process can work. And so we talked to former members of Congress, ones that had experienced the pre and post uh, moratorium period that understood how these, uh, how earmarking 
affected their jobs as representatives? And also asking them the question, should we bring these things back? And if so, how? And we received some really uh, interesting and useful feedback. Uh, first off, there was near unanimity in the idea that earmarking should come back. Uh, uh, we were very careful to, to interview half Republicans, half Democrats. We had a mix of former appropriators and, and, and people who were not appropriators to get a good sense of, and rural and, uh, rural and urban districts. We're really trying to get a sense of you know, how this affected uh, the body as a whole in the House of Representatives. And of the people we talked to, nine said, absolutely bring back earmarking. And, and of the one who didn't, they were ambiv ambivalent about it. They weren't against it, but they were worried about, you know, uh, having solid reforms in place uh, before it did. So why is it that they were so uniform in their embrace of earmarking? Well, they made it clear that yes, indeed, uh, earmarking did help to create bipartisanship and it did help to forge uh, relationships between members, uh, either within states or regionally, uh, and it helped to bring back needed resources to districts. Uh, they said that uh, it helped in particular uh, rural America. There was a concern that you know, formula-based and grant-based funding just would not and has not provided the kinds of resources that rural America in particular needs and felt, and many members, about half uh, spoke about, you know, the need for um, that to come back through earmarking. They also commented that there were reforms started in 2007 that had actually started to work. They had started to bring back a, a level of transparency to the earmarking process. And they felt that they, they were beginning to re regain the public's trust and make the system work better. And that those reforms were cut short in 2011. And they also said, you know, pretty generally that they felt that the result of this has not been any savings of money, uh, but rather, again, a shifting or rebalancing of spending power towards the executive. Um, we also wanted to look at, um, you know, the post earmarking era and to see if there had been any changes related to the end of earmarks. And what we found was that, you know, in the post earmarking period during the moratorium, it actually, the, the job of legislative majorities actually did get quite a bit harder. We look, we analyzed uh, bills in Congress that were priorities of the legislative majority, whether they be Republican or Democrat. And what we found is that there was a strong uptick in polarization, that it became harder for legislative majorities to coalesce around legislative majorities' priorities. And that's a kind of fundamental need and, and requirement really of, of an elected majority in the House of Representatives is at least an ability to pass their, um, their priorities. And, and the leadership was, was failing in doing so post moratorium. So it became clear to us that earmarks should be thought of not as a spending issue as much as an institutional capacity issue. And that we could realize tremendous gains by uh, bringing back a reformed and modified version of earmarking. It, you know, earmarking is not perfect. And in our paper, the one that Kevin and I wrote for AEI uh, in, in February, we outlined some, some key uh, reforms that we thought should be represented in what Congress is doing if they're going to bring them back. First on the list, of course, was transparency. Uh, make this clear to the American people what's going on, who's requesting what, and how much is it costing. Uh, and make that clear and accessible on a website. Don't spread it around, don't hide the ball. Uh, let the American people, interest groups, researchers, 
have a great sense of what's happening. So they can, and we, you know, we believe uh, once they, they see what's happening, that, that we'll see that you know, the, 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 the bulk of earmarking are going to, to needed uh, projects around the country. Uh, another thing that we wanna see is, is uh, uh, reforms in place that help to prevent abuse. Uh, in particular, um, audits. This is a, a recommendation from many of our members who said that earmarks were rarely followed up, followed up on in terms of the money being spent appropriately. So we'd like to see an audit of earmarks that get funded to make sure that Congress is exercising an oversight power of the spending. Also, that there be a strong conflict of interest policy, that congressional members um, are not uh, conflicted by you know, either familial or or other kinds of relationships that would skew their judgment about identifying priorities. Last thing we would, I would say in terms of reforms is ensuring greater equity in how earmarks are distributed. One thing that we found from members and found looking at the data is that yes, indeed, appropriators and leadership tend to get the, uh, an outsized share of earmarks. And we were looking for reforms that helped to increase the equity in which members could access these funds. Uh, also paying attention to regional equities as well to make sure that these funds are uh, spent in ways that uh, benefit all of America in a more equitable way. And I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, I think there's been some real positive movements within in Congress. And I was heartened to see that, that this did not become, and these days everything becomes a kind of partisan food fight. But surprisingly, earmarking, I think that the sort of understanding of earmarking as an institutional capacity issue and as a article one spending issue. I think this has now been understood and embraced by both parties. You know, Democrats have initiated this, but uh, Republicans in the House of Representatives have also voted to uh, uh, essentially permit their members to submit requests for earmarks. And I think we, we're moving in a direction where uh, despite the partisan rancor, I think we're seeing institutional reform. I think we're seeing both sides coming together as members of Congress and recognizing the needs of the institution and are attempting to fulfill those needs. And I see that as a very positive step. And I think it's something um, you know, that might seem small to some, but may be a, a signal of a recognition of the lack of, of, of uh, capacity in Congress and an institutional willingness to do something about it. I'm going to turn now to Phil, and I, I plugged your paper before, but I'm going to mention the title of it one more time because it's a good lead in and it's a good paper. But does the executive branch control the power of the purse? Uh, sort of a reversal of, of what we are talking about today. Does Congress control the power of the purse? So, Phil, if you're, if you're there, take it away. Okay. Is the ghost in the machine letting me through this time? Yes, we hear you well. Okay, that's great. Uh, so thanks so much for giving me the chance to talk about this research, which again was with, with Molly Reynolds of, of the Brookings Institution. Um, I wanna lead off by talking about three recent episodes in the history of American spending. So episode one, um, if you'll recall back in ancient history uh, of, of the 2010s, Republicans in Congress really did not like the Affordable Care Act. Um, they talked about that a lot, and they passed various uh, repeals that, that in the House of Representatives that, that didn't go anywhere. Um, but really, as long as President Obama was in the White House, they had no way of taking an ax to that law. They did find one chink in the law's armor, though, which involved subsidies for insurance companies that participated in the health care exchanges. 
the, the ACA did not designate any funding stream for those subsidies. And in 2014, Congress declined to provide any appropriations for them. Well, that sounds like the end of the line for those subsidies then, right? I mean, as Kevin explained, the Constitution gives Congress the power to decide uh, what monies are appropriated and, and what aren't. Well, that wasn't actually the end of the line for this program. The Obama administration asserted that an existing permanent appropriation authority for tax refunds covered the new subsidies and it just plowed ahead with them. The House of Representatives sued and it won uh, in the District Court for the District of Columbia, uh, but the payments kept going out anyhow as the case was headed toward appeal. And that was where things were left at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, eventually, the Trump administration decided to discontinue those payments, and that ended that little episode of conflict. But in the meantime, the Obama administration had funneled many billions of dollars uh, into these subsidies in spite of Congress's attempt not to provide money for them. Okay, that's episode one. Episode two, Donald Trump uh, wanted very much to build a wall, a big, beautiful wall between the United States and Mexico. Um, as a candidate, he said that Mexico would be paying for that wall, but it, it didn't turn out that they were eager to do so. Instead, uh, Trump went to Congress looking for funds. And in late 2018, he was looking for $5.7 billion. Congress wanted to give him $1.4 billion, which was the same amount they'd been giving to that purpose for a number of years. Uh, as they came to an impasse over this question of, of how much money would be provided for the border, uh, border wall, uh, we had a government shutdown to begin 2019. And it dragged on and neither side seemed willing to give an inch. And eventually the president decided he would sign a bill with Congress's preferred amount and then immediately declare a national emergency on the southern border. Uh, he basically said, the emergency is that Congress won't give me the money that I want, and so we're not going to be safe, and so I'm going to repur repurpose a bunch of other money, uh, generally from defense accounts, uh, for the purposes of keeping America safe on its southern border. Congress voted to knock out that emergency declaration, but the president kept it in place by using his veto power. Uh, the battle went into court in various venues over various chunks of money that were being repurposed. And those fights were not generally going very well for the administration. But uh, in the meantime, it was still able to repurpose some billions of dollars for the wall, clearly in direct opposition to congressional intent. And that dragged on until the end of the Trump administration. Um, Finally, the third episode, a bit different in flavor because it involves the Trump administration holding up an expenditure that Congress did appropriate. Congress had voted some $400 million in military aid to Ukraine. The Trump administration delayed it from going out. Apparently they had their reasons, which were debated at length in Trump's first impeachment trial. Overall, you'd have to say that Congress did not approve of the administration's reasons, but they were not willing to remove the president from office over this. Uh, and in fact, I got, got very, very few votes from anybody of his party uh, to do so. So those are three episodes. Are they 
isolated instances? Are they a lot of money? Is this a big deal? Um, well, these are actions that affect things in the billions of dollars. Um, that, that ain't chump change, but you know, these days we seem to have transitioned to talking about federal spending uh, by talking about trillions. Um, and I think it's fair to say that presidents could not move trillions of dollars around without Congress behind them. There would be no way for them to get away with that. And there's, there's, no, there's no real sign that they would try. All of the huge amounts of, of spending that we've seen over the last uh, year, especially, have, have been very much a, a product of bipartisan compromise in, in Congress. Um, second thing to say about these actions, they weren't cooked up out of thin air. Um, the administrations, both the Obama and Trump administrations, were purporting to use authorities that Congress had put on the books to give the executive branch spending flexibility. And um, albeit in ways that many in Congress believe were improper. But it's worth dwelling for a, a couple minutes on, on what these authorities are. So there's transfer and reprogramming authorities, which allow uh, executive branch to move money within accounts for different purposes uh, or across accounts. Um, there used to be uh, lots of congressional vetoes on, on some of these authorities, but that was ruled unconstitutional back in the 1980s. And uh, so today there's lots of provisions that say, if you're gonna do these transfers, you gotta let the congressional committees of jurisdiction know about it. Um, but in the end, it just leaves the ability with the executive branch. Congress doesn't have an immediate recourse to, to stop these reprogrammings if it doesn't like them. There's something called apportionment, uh, which is generally controlled by the Office of Management and Budget on behalf of the president. So that's sort of slicing up these individual appropriations that Congress gives in, into sort of sub-purposes. And the, the executive branch has quite a lot of discretion in doing that in ways that can be important for policy. And then there are impoundments, which are the president's power to cancel spending or defer spending, wait until a later time to make it. And there are uh, controls on that from the Impoundment Control Act of 1974, but, uh, but the president still does have some flexibility there. Um, it's important to say that Congress is the one that built these flexibilities up over the years. They thought it was good, a good idea for the executive branch to have flexibility so that um, not everything would have to go through Congress and that we can adjust to new circumstances on the fly. But the overall effect is still pretty worrisome. Um, it seems like if Congress tries to deprive the president of funds and that isn't enough to effectively rein the president in, then what is? Um, we really have to start to worry that the se separation of powers is becoming a dead letter, um, at least as long as the president has a, a third of senators willing to defend his conduct and keep him from being removed from office. Um, what can we do about it? Well, there's a lot of wonky suggestions that, that Molly and I went over in our paper. Um, you can get the Office of Bu Management and Budget to be more transparent such that Congress would have an easier time overseeing what it, it, it does. Um, make it impossible to use rescissions just before the end of the fiscal year. 
we could do some reforms on how national emergencies play into this process. Uh, we could make it so national emergencies automatically expire if they don't get congressional backing instead of requiring Congress to override the president's veto if it wants to get rid of them. That would somewhat constrict um, some of the president's powers which depend on emergencies. We could strengthen Congress's monitoring capacity in various ways, including by beefing up the government accountability office. But at the end of the day, this is a question of congressional will. Do they want to go to the mattresses or don't they? Uh, and for the most part, the answer has been no. Um, Congress has not shown much willingness to put institutional interests above partisan ones in recent years and that might be necessary. It has shown limited ability to get its overall budget house in order such that it would even have the wherewithal to act uh, and be on top of these spending issues as they come up. And in the end, they need to decide that they want to take the fight to the president rather than just um, present themselves as aggrieved to the American public uh, and, and perhaps pursue their cases in the courts. Um, you know, I think as long as uh, the White House and Congress are occupied by the same party, we're, we're unlikely to see uh, the, the fireworks that might be necessary in, in a kind of showdown that, that would lead to some big change. But, uh, but I think as, as Zach Corser was saying, there is some real institutional sensibility that, that's at least bubbling up uh, these days and a willingness to talk about these issues. They're somewhat related to war powers issues um, that you hear about in the news lately. Um, I think there are there is a bipartisan coalition out there perhaps waiting to form, but, um, but in the end, we probably shouldn't hold our breath uh, until, until we come to some big constitutional showdown. I'll leave it at that. Great, thank, thank you, Phil. Um, so we're gonna turn now to some discussion among the group here, some questions I have. Let me start with a question, I guess it's primarily for Phil or first for Phil, but I think anyone else can, can weigh in as well. I mean, I think all of you have laid out in a way some of the, um, the challenge that the Congress has in sort of exercising this power. I mean, in theory, the power of the purse could be an all-encompassing power not, not allow the president to spend anything, to do anything really, if Congress doesn't allow it. Um, and then of course we can get into some questions about whether the president has independent authority himself and do things, but, but really if, if Congress wanted to really use this power, there's very little limit to what it could do. And I, I take you back and Phil mentioned more powers to the 2006 elections where you know, Democrats, um, winning victories in part because of opposition to the, the war in Iraq um, and, and their base thought, well, this is, this is the chance for the, the new, congress, new, new Congress to really put a stop to this, to stop the executive, to stop the, the hostilities, to, you know, to change course uh, in foreign policy. Uh, and of course that, that didn't happen. And I think people recognized quickly that it was very difficult to do so there's something of an all or nothing power to this. And um, what, what, what can you say about this? I, I definitely wanna get into the, the, the smaller issues and the budget issues, the spending things and the specifics, but what about this big disconnect between this very powerful power and how difficult it is to use in a very serious way on some of the biggest questions we have? 
Yeah, I'll start by saying there's just an enormous status quo bias in our system for any number of reasons. Uh, even though, you know, as Kevin said, first of all, a huge amount of federal spending is is based on permanent appropriations authority at this point. It, we usually we call them entitlements. They're they're built into the law. They don't have to go through the annual appropriations process. So that's in the first instance, Congress would have to change something to get to get a, a hold on that money. And of course, the president could always step in with his veto power um, to stop them from doing so. So that's thing number one. I, thing number two is just, you know, Congress really isn't willing to zero out a lot of different activities as its as its ultimate um, sort of sort of Damocles hanging over. But they're not really willing to let it fall. Um, so, you know, you think about the Iraq war, well, are you going to be the one to put, to, to leave the troops in harm's way without the funds to, to support them? That's seen as politically untenable. And so whether you want to get out of there or not, you're, you're seen as needing to pony up the money for the troops. And that same logic, um, in a less dramatic fashion really applies to an awful lot of, of federal programming. Um, so... Are you going to be the one to to, to defund um, the Environmental Protection Agency Republicans who talk about how much you hate it and, and therefore incur the political costs of uh, you know the next environmental disaster entirely on your heads? You know, I think I think these kinds of issues probably don't feature quite as divergent opinions as it sometimes seems based on people's rhetoric. Um, but as long as Congress is not willing to drop to drop that sort of zeroing people out, uh, the executive branch officials and the president sort of know that as much as Congress may posture, they're gonna they're gonna give money in the end. And so that really reduces Congress's leverage. John, just a quick yes, please, <clears throat> that I wanted to make uh... You know, there's a kind of um, uh, worry, I think, in, in your question about, you know, the sort of unrestrained spending power of Congress. And I, and I just wanted to say this, you know, that I think when it comes to the spending power, there's this worry and thought that, you know, Congress and the president are co-equal on this issue. And they're, they're really not. You know, there, there's a, a quote from a, a political uh, scientist that said that, you know, if two thirds of Congress think so, they could put the White House up for sale uh, and the president would have to find someplace else to live. Um, that, you know, this is something, the founders knew the, the power that they were giving to Congress and they felt it appropriate because it is the, the representative, most representative body uh, in our, uh, you know, separated powers but I do think it's important and appropriate that Congress possess this power. You know, Madison knew very well in the Federalist Papers when he said that basically, you know, by giving this power to Congress, it's a kind of insurance policy in a way that the people will be represented in issues of, of taxation and spending. And that it, it's sort of the power in the sense that you can stop the executive, you know, completely uh, by defunding the president and the president's actions. So. I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I, I think we, it, in terms of spending, you know, let's not think of the executive and Congress as co-equal. It really should be Congress that that has um, the authority and and precedence in the sp in spending decisions as a 
a more democratic approach uh, and, and really one that I think matches the, the theory and intent of, of the founders. Let me, let me turn to a, a second set of questions. I'm going to direct them a little more at Kevin. Um, and uh, I, I, my, my questions are partly about the, the Budget Act and the budget process. Uh, in fact, I do also have an audience question here, which is not identified who it's from, but it says simply, what is wrong with the 1974 Congressional Budget Act? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just flesh out that a couple of ways. So, so Kevin, you know, first of all, aside from the sort of small things that you would do uh, with the Budget Act or the budget process. I mean, we have, we have some big issues you've identified, this issue that much of our spending is somewhat off limits. It's mandatory spending. We don't think about it as much. It's somewhat on autopilot. It's much harder to get to. Um, should the budget process deal with that? Um, you hinted that you know we've done this in different ways over the years. Some, some have suggested maybe thinking about our appropriations and authorization processes as separate processes. Maybe we should rethink that or bring them together to some extent, big things like that. So I guess my question is, you know, you want to wave your magic wand and reform the budget process and tell us why, why Congress would be better off or the budget process would be better off. What would, what would that be? Oh, good question. And I feel like <clears throat> any wand waving that goes on has to at bottom, focus on reconnecting members of Congress's incentives towards desirable budgetary ends. Right now, it feels like that that's been completely cut asunder. Um, you know, we can't pass appropriation bills unless we ball them all up and wait till the last minute and ram them through along a party line vote. Um, and the the whole seventy four budget act is just predicated on a different kind of Congress, one that is not heavily polarized, one where uh, chairman of both authorizations and appropriations um, feel a real strong sense of ownership and are expected to, to collaborate and coordinate uh, and do things like go through the reauthorization process for programs, but that is not occurring right now. And I would say that, you know, simplifying the process is the first reform I would do. It just is way too complicated to have to run through. You have authorizations, you have appropriations, you have this expedited table where all the work of drawing up a budget resolution, a spending plan has to be done within the first four months of the calendar year, which is especially difficult during a change in presidential administration. Um, you know, soup to nuts, there's just the whole thing needs to be changed. There's no part of the process right now where the president can kind of act as a credible first mover. So for example, one thing I've advocated is that Congress have a kind of fast track process whereby it would respond to a presidential proposal in January of here are the programs that we should zero out. You know, the president always in his budget has a whole chapter of stuff that's devoted to, you know, here are the things we no longer need that are not effective that we should delete. Why are these not being put together in a single piece of legislation and having Congress vote up or down on them to get Congress kind of actively involved in a salient form of budget cutting? Uh, that would be a step. Uh, there, are just, there, there are just so many, and it is a very, very vexing problem. 
And uh, I'll, I'll turn to Zach. Obviously, Zach can Bill can weigh out on that question, a small question as well. But um, want to focus a little on earmarks and and your presentation and. Um, maybe play devil's advocate in a couple of questions or ask you why, uh, whether you think these uh, objections, uh, what, what you would say about them. Uh, one is, uh, you made a very interesting point and others have made it too, about how earmarks or generally transactional politics, meaning uh, your district gets this, my district gets this, that kind of building of support for a bill, uh, a highway bill or sometimes an ag bill or a water resources bill has that look, but that's less ideological. Um, maybe against cuts against polarization or, or maybe another more extreme way of putting it And here where I think you know, the extreme case is hard to justify, but, but maybe sometimes people would vote for things against their ideology if they, they got their program in there, that big bills could pass if we grease the skids with, with earmarks. Um, my question is, do, do you think that one, we're in the same place that we were a few years ago? You mentioned polarization is worse. I'm, I'm not sure that's because we've gotten rid of earmarks, or at least certainly not the primary reason. I think polarization across the country and state legislatures, all sorts of places has gotten worse, but you know, we're in a tougher place uh, in many ways. What would you say to people who would be skeptical about earmarks really bringing down the temperature or bringing down the polarization? Okay, John, it's a good question. Um, I guess to the first part of that relating to this idea, you know, we, we, we didn't make the case that somehow earmarks were a primary contributor to polarization, but we did think about this initially when we entered into our research, at ear, thought of earmarks as sort of a, a tool for governance by uh, the majority. And one of the ways we approached it was thinking about, you know, how, how and whether leadership did use earmarks in a way to build coalitions. And in talking to former members, what we found is, and we asked very specific questions and had discussions about this very point, is that the moments where earmarks became critical to passage of certain beers, uh, certain uh, bills, were actually pretty rare. Uh, this, this was not like a common way in which members uh, approached their votes. It, it wasn't really about log rolling. It wasn't sort of, you know, the leadership coming up all the time and saying, you know, if you'll vote for our priority, we'll give you X. It did happen, but it happened on the margins. Really what we found is that the primary way that in which earmarks worked were a, a sort of um, bipartisan process within the appropriations uh, committees and the transportation committee, whereby essentially the, 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 the majority came together with the minority and said, look, we have X amount of money for earmarks this year. We're gonna give about 60% to the majority. We're gonna give 40% to the minority. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna let you decide how you wanna spend it. You know, we're basically gonna take the budget resolution and decide what's left over. And you guys can divide amongst your membership based on the priorities that your membership believes in. And so for, if you're in the minority, you, you as the, the ranking member of these committees, you basically got to decide what were the priorities in your caucus. And so rather than being a, uh, an incentive to sort of bend the will of members, what it actually became is a recognition that a primary function of a representative is to identify spending needs and try to bring them back to their districts. And I think that's really primarily what was done. I mean, this is what members reflected to us. And the sort of, you know, a salubrious result was that the budget process, frankly, worked much better. 
there were much bigger majorities for uh, spending bills. Uh, the budget process worked better. You know, we look at, you know, when we, we've pulled the plug on earmarking and we look at, you know, Kevin's been talking about these omnibus spending bills, we can see a lot of dysfunction in that process. Uh, polarization, um, not passing budget resolutions, uh, continuing resolutions for, for having the budget process, you know, in place of the budget process in a way. Uh, you know, I think earmarking was a way in which, again, it, it helped the institution function, but not in the way of sort of uh, horse trading or uh, making members vote for things they wouldn't ordinarily. That did happen, but I would say, again, it was on the margins. Thank you, Zach Corser. Thank you, Kevin Kosar. Thank you, Phil Wallach. Uh, we hope you will join us at the next session of the uh, Henry Salvatore at AEI session on Congress. Uh, we are closing the event today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.